Today's scripture reading is Jonah 1, 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your god. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to uh, Jonah. We're going to be looking at Jonah this morning and uh, next couple of Sunday mornings and talking about the Jonah saga. I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, lots of our folks are up in Edmond. Y- you know, uh, one, of, one of the really uh, ironic things that you see is how parents also grow through these camp experiences. Last week, uh, we had all of our teenagers heading up to Edmond. Uh, some of them stayed this week to work the, uh, the younger kiddo camp, and uh, their parents brought them up, and uh, the bus left about 6.30, 6.40, basically on time. And uh, all of the parents were, hey, see you later. See you when you get back. And uh, took off. And all the parents were, hey, we're weak, you know, without, without having to worry about the kiddos so much. This morning, that bus got off really late. And it's all those mamas kept getting onto that bus to, to make sure that those kids were, were doing fine and, and crying. And some of those mothers were, were, uh, were doing worse than the kiddos. But it's a really, it, it, you know, summer camp is such an, an exceptional experience for kids. When, when you talk to young adults and even to, to even some middle-aged adults, if you ask them, uh, you know, what, what was it that you experienced when you were younger that helped you to, to be the person of faith that you are today, the majority of them are going to say, it was my experience at camp. And I'm so thankful that, uh, that our, our church is involved with camp the way that it is, not just in our kiddos uh, uh, attending camp and, and being the recipients of the blessings that come and being together with hundreds of kids, 
They're the same age, singing beautifully, listening to lessons, involved in projects together and, and growing in their faith, but then staying another week so that they can pass that blessing on to even younger children as they make their way up through the camp ranks. And uh, I want us to pray again. Paul's already led us in a prayer, but as we get ready to study God's Word this morning, I want us not only to pray that God bless us in our study of God's Word, but that He also bless these kiddos during the next week with their study of God's Word and their growing knowledge of Him in their, in their minds. And that's, let's bow our heads together. Father, thank You for all the ways that You make Yourself evident to us uh, through this Word, through this world that we live in, through the ways that You take care of us every day, through Christ, through Your Spirit, Father, in all of these ways we rejoice and are thankful that You have not been aloof, that You have not in Your holiness separated Yourself from us so that we would never know You, that we would never know Your face, never be able to come before You. And for all of this, Father, we, we praise You. And we seek for You to be magnified in our lives in such a way that You are the truest reality, the only reality for us. And as we study this morning and as uh, these, these kiddos from, from states all, all through the Midwest and, and from the South and the West, Father, come together and, and meet at the campus of Oklahoma Christian, we pray Your blessing upon them as well. We pray, Father, that You will solidify them in their knowledge of You and, and, and boost and increase their faith, that they remain faithful to You all the days of their life. And for those of us, Father, that, that have been blessed by camp, we rejoice, Father, in the anticipation of the impact it's going to have these kiddos in the next five days. So bless us, Father, with eyes that see and ears that hear. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus and all the church said. We begin our thoughts this morning right in the first verse of the very first chapter of Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Seth, Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. I want you on your outlines or in your Bible to circle that word great in that sentence. It's a word that's going to appear again and again and again and again in this little book from the Old Testament. Now, one of the things that we learn about Jonah is that he is a prophet and not a priest, which meant a pretty big difference in ministry. A priest, for example, served the temple. They, they offered sacrifices. They led people in worship. A prophet, on the other hand, was, was different in character. A prophet was, in the strictest, truest sense, a reformer or an activist trying to bring change to a society, in, in most cases, an Israelite society, trying to make it more godly, trying to get that, that, that society, that culture, to recognize the presence of God. Now the irony is that a lot of people thought that the prophets were nothing more than a bunch of troublemakers. That they were always trying to prick people's consciences. And Israel had a lot of priests, but generally speaking, they only had one prophet at a time because that's about all Israel could stand at a time. And one day, the word of the Lord comes to this particular prophet, the son of Amittai, a fellow by the name of Jonah, and he says, I want you to go to Nineveh. A life is not easy when you're a prophet. And this word comes and says, I want you to go. And when you hear from God, and sometimes you will, 
Sometimes it's just three little words, and those three little words can change your life. For Jonah, it did. Go to Nineveh. Now, Jonah's a prophet, that's for sure, but he was a prophet that is, is mainly, at least in his thinking, he is this prophet to Israel. Now, prophets, generally speaking, didn't go to other countries, at least in the way that, that, uh, that we normally think about prophets. Obadiah would preach against Edom. Later, Nahum would say some harsh things about Nineveh. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the, in the message this morning. But generally speaking, these prophets stayed in Israel. And they were not always really all that concerned about these other nations. They didn't have Torah. They didn't have a temple. They didn't understand the sacrifices. They didn't even know God the way that Israel did. And that's why when this word comes to, to Jonah, it's striking. Go to Nineveh and preach. Now, this is extremely striking in how it's expressed. Jonah is not merely to go to Nineveh and preach to it. He was to go to Nineveh, to go to that great, that great city, and he's to preach against it, the text says. Now that's kind of an intimidating task. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And in the 7th and the 8th centuries B.C., Assyria is this great, strong world power. And it chewed up and it spit out countries right and left. It would put the populations of those countries that it defeated on death marches. It practiced genocide basically as a state policy. And when Israel was split into two sections, some of you know this, there was a northern kingdom, ten tribes up there, and there was a southern kingdom, two tribes to the south. And this northern kingdom, those ten tribes to the north, they were basically captured and vaporized obliterated really by Assyria in 721 BC and Assyria is just so cruel and it's so hated that they are going to get one prophet from God or their own now Jonah is really not the only one in history there is this prophet by the name of Nahum and he says about Nineveh this capital of Assyria that in a sense embodied you, you know, this, this, this cruelty, the, 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 the legend of its cruelty, he was going to speak out against this. And what he says are not kind words in the least. He says in the third chapter of Nahum, Woe to the city of what? When you think of Nineveh, you think about a lot of things. Nahum says it's a city of blood. Full of what? Full of what else? Never without what? Victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, meaning chariots, war like tanks, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears. The end of verse 3, many casualty, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over what? Corpses. And then you drop down to verse 19. Nothing, Nahum says to, to Nineveh, can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. God is, God is judging Assyria. And everyone, everyone in the world who hears the news about you, meaning that they've been wounded with a mortal wound, They're, they are terminal. Assyria will not continue. Assyria has a, a, a shelf life. Everyone who hears the news about you does what? Claps your hands. 
claps his hands at your fall. Standing ovation that Nineveh has fallen. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? You know, Nineveh is, 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 is so hated, but not for her cruelty. Nineveh is hated for her endless cruelty. And when Nineveh tumbles, Nahum says that people are going to give standing ovations. They are going to applaud the collapse of Assyria. Now to understand this, to understand how Israel would feel about Nineveh, think about the Al-Qaeda or think about, about the, what the Nazis did in Poland and other places in the 1930s and the 1940s. Think of raping and brutalizing and enslaving. Think of murdering power. And Nahum says these very, very strong condemning words about Nineveh. But here's the thing. Where do you think Nahum is when he says these words? He's in Israel. He is a long way from Nineveh. But the Word of God comes to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Go to where? Nineveh. Jonah, you go and tell them face to face that they're facing a pretty ferocious judgment. I want you to tell that to their face. And Jonah says, Lord, Nahum got to taunt them from a distance. Couldn't we like send a telegram or something? And the word of the Lord comes to, to Jonah, go to Nineveh. Go. I wonder how that word came. Was it a burning bush or a small voice? Was it an angel, a vision, a dream? Was there any room for doubt? The text doesn't say. Did people around Jonah know when it happened? Where was, where was Mrs. Jonah? Did Jonah go home that day and have her ask, how was work today? And he tells her, well, I'm supposed to go to Assyria and condemn them face to face and have her say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. The text doesn't say. It just says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Well, Nineveh is not in Jonah's comfort zone. Which brings us to a very important truth. The first truth that Jonah teaches us, this book of Jonah teaches us, and it's this. Nineveh is the place God calls you to go, but where you do not want to go. Nineveh is trouble. Nineveh is danger. Nineveh is fear. What do you do when God says to you, go to Nineveh, I want you to go to the place and do the thing in the place where you don't want to go that I'm telling you to do? You know, God does that sometimes. Now, we find out what Jonah's response was, and, and, and to get the impact of this, you have to understand where these cities were located back in the Near, uh, near East. I, I want us to look at a map. You know, Nineveh is, is relative to Israel. God says, look at the map, says, go to Nineveh. It's not that far apart. Now, jo Jonah does arise, and he does go in response to the word of the Lord. But he does not go to Nineveh. He leaves home, but it's not in the direction that God wants him to go. He heads for a place called Tarshish. Anybody want to guess in what direction Tarshish is, is, is located in? Look at the map again. <laughs> Could you run any further in the other direction? Verse 3, but Jonah ran from the Lord. And headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now Jonah the prophet, the man of God, what is he doing? He's running from God. 
Now I'm telling you right now that this is not a very intelligent thing to do. What he is doing is not the smart thing. Who would ever run from a hard task that God has sent them to do? Now here's one of the things that makes disobedience to God possible. Whether it's, it's, it's Cain killing Abel, or it's, it's David with Bathsheba, or whoever. One of the, the, in fact, it's the second truth or principle that Jonah teaches about sin. It's this, disobedience requires the illusion that I won't get caught. That's why the Bible over and over again says that the deeds of evil are done at what time of the day? In darkness, at night, right? That's why so many kids try to cheat on exams. I think I've told you the story about the football player who was struggling in his math class. He cheats on his midterm exam, and the professor catches it and says that this, this guy must have cheated on the test because he's sitting next to the smartest kid in the class. And the professor calls him in and says, you know, you both got the exact same score on the test. You, you both just got one question wrong. And the football player says, well, it could have been a coincidence. The professor says, yeah, but you both got the same question wrong. And the football player says, well, again, it could have been a coincidence. But the professor says, but the best student's paper said, I don't know the answer to this question. And your paper said, I don't know the answer either. <laughs> I don't know if that really happened or not, but it should have if it didn't. <laughs> The truth is folks want to have grades that they don't deserve and opportunities that go with them. We want to have people think that we're smarter than we really are. We want people to think that we're more honest than we really are. And, and underneath it all, in the mix somewhere, is the inability or the refusal to trust the fact that we're loved by God no matter what grade we get. And somewhere in that mix is our wanting to have the thing that does not belong to us. So we just do it thinking that we're not going to get caught. And to do it, the first thing we have to do is to make sure our mind does not think about God being right there while we're doing it. We have to keep our mind thinking about other stuff so we don't have to think about that stuff. That is God's presence, God's Word, God's, God's will, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of of His blood, the sacrificing of His body in order for us to have that relationship with God. What we want is to, to not think about God, which brings us to a third principle. When we want to do something wrong, it always, church, it always involves running from the Lord. We all do this. People do it all the time. It is a struggle that everyone in this room has dealt with at one time or another or dealing with it right now. And it may happen like this. I know that God is asking me to go to Nineveh. I know God wants me to, to confront this person, to have a conversation about the truth, but that would be hard. That would be unpleasant. I don't want to face that pain, so I'll just go to Tarshish. Or it's, I know God is calling me to serve in this area, but I don't want to do it. It might be humbling. It might be difficult. People might not think about me in the ways that I want people to think about me. It might be scary. I don't want to do it, so I think I'm going to run away to Tarshish. Or I know God is calling me to let go of, 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 of the grip that money has on my life and, I, and, and, and knowing what that grip does to my life. And I know that God is saying, trust me enough to be generous 
And I know God says, test me with your tithe. Test me on this and see if I'm not faithful. If I don't care for you. But I don't want to let go. I don't want to release my grip. So I'm going to run to Tarshish. Or maybe it looks like this. I know God wants me to confess this sin. And I know God wants me to acknowledge this habit. Or I know God wants me to let go of this sexual relationship or this sexual habit. Or I know God wants me to release this judgmental attitude in my spirit. I know that God wants me to forgive that other person and to not be bitter. I know, but I don't want to. I'm going to get on the ship to Tarshish. And that church, unfortunately, is what Jonah does. He thought as every one of us sometimes think, I can run from God. I can run from God. Nobody will ever know. And maybe you're there right now. Well, Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is, is a port city where he found, uh, found a, a ship bound for Tarshish. And after paying the fare, he goes on board. He sails for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, a little detail that we skip over from time to time, at least nowadays, is that the text says that Jonah paid the fare. That's actually a pretty big deal. In the ancient world, money was relatively new. And much of the ancient world had been on a barter economy and money was tremendously scarce among the people of Israel. Not too many people in Israel could have done what Jonah did. But Jonah has the means. He has the money, enough to buy passage for this long voyage. Out of his pocket, he's able to do it. He has mobility. He has options. And here's one of the dangerous things about money. Having money makes it easier to think that I can run from the presence of God. That I can escape from God's scrutiny because I've got options. Now, you need to know also for this story that Tarshish is pretty significant too, not just because it's the opposite direction from Nineveh, but because in many ways it's the opposite kind of city from Nineveh. Nineveh is a military city, flashing swords, spears that are rattling, the sound of chariot wheels in the streets. Tarshish, though, is not a military power. It's a, it's a city of great wealth. Tarshish is a pioneer in trade. Commerce over the sea was kind of like a new technology, and it was making a lot of people rich. Not a bad thing necessarily, but it has always had a way of leading to greed and to arrogance and to pride. And so the phrase, a ship of Tarshish, became a symbol of, of of, of wealth in the ancient world. It actually comes up a number of times in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 27, Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of goods. They exchanged silver and iron and tin and lead for your merchandise. Drop down to verse 26 and 27. Your oarsmen take you out to the high seas, but the east wind will break you to pieces in the heart of the sea. Your wealth merchandise and wares, your mariners, seamen and shipwrights, your merchants and all your soldiers and everyone else on board will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. A ship of Tarshish was a great deal in the Old Testament. Plus it's kind of hard to pronounce. <laughs> Sounds like you're lisping or something. I, every time I've read this passage, I, I thought of Sylvester the Cat in the old cartoons, a guy that said suffering succotash. It sounds like you're lisping. But the ship of Tarshish became symbolic of wealth, became symbolic of self-sufficiency and power and greed. 
I mean, can you imagine that there was once a group of human beings so deluded that they would think that technology and wealth and a clever economic system would make them secure? It's kind of unbelievable that there was once people so deluded like that in the human race. But Jonah has run away. And to put it in 21st century terms, Jonah is running away to Wall Street. Jonah is running away to Madison Avenue. He's running to the place where he thinks there's going to be safety. And he thinks he's running towards opportunity and security. But maybe what really looks safe from a human perspective is not really actually at all safe. Maybe the only real safe place is to be in the will of God for your life, even if the will of God takes you to Nineveh. Even if the will of God takes you to the scary place that you don't want to go. Maybe Nineveh is really the safe place. Verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great, there's that word great again, on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up and all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now if this is a major league storm and these are professional sailors, they don't panic easily but they're panicking now. In fact, they are so scared that they're taking their cargo and they begin to throw it overboard which is a huge thing economically for them. These voyages could last for a really long time and, and this kind of loss would have been tremendous for these men at this very moment. And the text says another interesting thing. It says that they are praying to their own God. Now, outside of Israel, the ancient world did not generally have this idea of monotheism, the one great God. They thought of little tribal gods for each little ethnic group or tribal group. And it's kind of ironic, as we sometimes like to think that we invented, you know, the concept of multiculturalism. But this is, you know, a, a very diverse group of men on this ship. They are multicultural. They're a crew from all over the place displaying a vibrant religious pluralism. Each is praying to his own God. Now, when the sea is calm, any old name for any old God is okay. But when a storm hits, everything changes. And what you're hoping for, if you're one of these sailors, is that one of these gods that everybody is praying to turns out to be the real God. Now, does anybody here know what Jonah was doing at this point? He's doing what? At the bottom of the boat. He's sleeping. Sleeping. When I think about this part of the story, I don't really get it because I always think about a time when some of our men in this church family decided to go deep sea fishing during what we consider to be the perfect storm. We're on a little boat in 8 to 10 foot swells. There's like 28 of us. 26 of us are seasick. Anybody here ever been seasick? Awful. Well, Jonah is sleeping in the bottom of the boat in the middle of the storm, and the captain is stunned by this. Verse 6, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Now, here there is tremendous, fabulous irony. A pagan Gentile ship captain is calling the man of God to prayer. And the pagan is doing what prophets do, calling men to pray to God. And the prophet is doing what pagans do, sleeping when it's prayer time. Now God is up to something in this book. God is up to something really, really interesting. Jonah does nothing at this point, so the sailors all cast lots. as a way of trying to define what's going on here. And the lots indicate that Jonah is the problem. Jonah is the reason. And they point to Jonah. 
And he answers, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what? What have you done? And then this parenthetical statement, they knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. Now the word great again is attached to their fear. And this parenthetical statement is hugely significant because something very deep, very scary, very wonderful is happening here. And to understand this, we have to understand something about the words that are used for God in the Old Testament. The word El or Elohim is the generic word for God or God. It shows up in our Bibles as the word gods or God. But when you see the word Lord, all in capital letters, it in the English Bible, it represents the personal name of God, Yahweh. When the word Lord, capital L and then lower cases, is seen in your Bible, it's the word Adonai in Hebrew, which is basically translated as Lord, again, all in lowercase letters. Now back on the boat, the sailors have been praying to a bunch of tribal gods, each to their own Elohim, each to their own God. Then they ask Jonah, what's going on? And Jonah in essence says, there is a God, there is one God. He is the God of Abraham and Sarah. He is the God of Moses and Miriam. He is the God who wants to be known by his people. He is the God who created the seas and the lands. That's the language that the Gentiles would know. And Jonah says, his name is Yahweh. Now this is the reason for the parenthesis in the text. The sailors already knew that Jonah was running away from his God. They figured that it was just one of the tribal gods of Israel. The Assyrians have their God. Tarshish has their God. Israel must have their God or their gods. They figured he's just running away from his own God. But then they see the storm. And Jonah says, there is the God. He's the one that sent the storm. Far away from Israel, he sent this storm upon us. He is real, he reigns over heaven and earth, and he has a name, and he wants to be known. And then they have this great fear. You see, they come to know Jonah's God on the ship of Tarshish in the middle of a storm. And again, something remarkable is happening. And I'll tell you something else amazing about the irony of the story. If Jonah had come to them in pride and as a successful prophet had said, Men of Tarshish, I want you to know my God is bigger than your God. My God is better than your God. He is the supreme being. They probably would have dismissed him because it would have felt just like another ethnic tribal superior moment. But Jonah comes to them not saying anything about God. He doesn't even want them to know that he knows God. He waited until he had to talk about God. And one of the reasons that they're going to believe Jonah is that he comes to them as this knucklehead in the middle of the biggest mistake he has ever made in running from God. He's been a prophet for all of these years, and yet this will be the greatest mass Gentile conversion he has ever seen in his life, right there on that ship. And it's all because of Jonah's failure that God uses this failure to bring all these people to faith. And in verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it'll become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Now for the first time, Jonah says, I'm not going to run from God anymore. But there's again this irony here. These sailors on the ship of Tarshish have more compassion, 
more raw humanity on this Hebrew prophet than the Hebrew prophet had had on the people of Nineveh. And part of what the writer is telling us is that you have to be real careful about judging who the, the good guys are and who the bad guys are, who is on God's side and who is not on God's side. You have to be real careful in making snap judgments about that kind of thing. That there is no room for pride and a spirit of superiority or exclusivity or judgmentalism on the, people, you know, on the part of the people of God. If the sailors of Tarshish have above, you know, who have all of this compassion and humanity are willing to risk their own lives trying to row the boat onto, onto shore, then what's the deal with Jonah? But this storm just is strong and it keeps coming. And so they say a prayer. Now they had already been praying, but each to their own God. But notice now who they pray to. Then they cried, verse 14, to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh. Please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Yahweh, have done as you pleased. Who are they praying to? To Yahweh. How many times? Three. The writer is hitting us over the head with this. And so they take him to the side of the boat. To, to the boat. I, I, I mean, imagine this moment. Awesome storm, terrified sailors, runaway prophet, capsizing boat, you wonder what's going on in Jonah's mind. I mean, he knows he's going to die. He knows he is going to die. But he's tired of running from God, and he would rather die than keep running from God, and his body is thrown into the water. And on deck, all of the sailors, you know, everybody, all of a sudden, everything is calm. The storm is, is gone. You know, sometimes you run from God, you run long enough, you live in the storm of disobedience in your heart, Maybe in your circumstances because there's, there's always a price to pay in running from God. Maybe it's in your behavior. Maybe it's in your relationship. Maybe it's running away from uh, your calling or some ministry service area that God has called you to as a part of this church. And that storm keeps going and it keeps raging in your heart until finally, finally you say, all right, God, I'm going to stop running. My life, my behavior, my relationships, my time, my money, my attitude, my whatever it is, it's yours, God. I'm not going to run anymore. And about that time, you think you're going to die, but that's when the storm begins to calm down. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of Jesus all over this book. Jesus would come one day, He would be in a boat when a storm hit, and, and He would calm the storm. And He still does that for people. And then this amazing thing happens in the book of Jonah. Then they took Jonah, verse 15, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. This is unbelievable. A pagan boat becomes a place of worship. One Jonah's plan. The last thing that Jonah was planning on was to see the ship of Tarshish become a place of worship of the living God. He was supposed to be going the other direction. It turns out these, these sailors on this ship, you know, they're not, not just bit players in this story after all. This is not some throwaway little detail in the story about Nineveh. It turns out that God's story is so big that it also is a story about Tarshish. 
And it turns out that Jonah thought he was running away from God. Jonah thought that he would thwart what it was that God wanted to do. To do. And it turns out that God is at work in ways that Jonah can't even begin to imagine or dream of. I mean, what a God. Now, how odd to all the readers of this story in Israel that at this point, pagan Gentiles are worshiping the God of Israel on the ship of Tarshish. And that Israel's prophet, the man of God, is sinking down into the ocean. And that's where we'll pick up next, next Sunday morning. But I, I want to leave you with a way of, of remembering the first chapter of Jonah. I heard a really good convinced version of the first chapter of Jonah, and it goes like this. God says, go. Jonah says, no. God asks, oh? Jonah says, so. Captain says, bro. Jonah says, throw. Sailors say, whoa. The well says, hello. And God says, yo, or Jonah says, yo. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. You know, it's amazing to me how Jonah is such a relevant book because each and every one of us here have been in the place of Jonah where we have known without a shadow of a doubt what it is that God wants us to do. It may be in writing a relationship. It might be dealing with some issue that's going on inside of our heart. It may be in, in, in choosing you know, a, a certain kind of a career path or, or dealing with a relationship. It might be any number of these things. And we keep saying, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I want to do. It's, it's more frightening to me than disobeying you. I'm not going to do it. And what happens is a storm comes into our life. And the only way to get rid of that storm, I'm telling you as, 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 as your minister, that the only way for you to deal with that storm is to find yourself in the middle, in the stream of God's will for your life. That's not to say it's going to be easy. And that's not to say that at times it won't be painful. But the place of strength and the, the, the place of calm in your heart is right there in the middle of God's will. Or it might be that you, you've known for a long time that there is a God in heaven who created all of these things. And it's beginning to dawn on you in your heart of hearts that you're not in a relationship with Him and that that is a scary thing in and of itself. And that in your heart of hearts, you also know that something has to be done. Your life is going off in one direction. There is this God over here that you're not in relationship and you just sense the danger of it all. It may be a relationship. It may be a habit. It may be some pleasure or something that is keeping you from doing what it is that God is calling you to do. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's not going to get any better for you. You're not going to feel any more significant. You're not going to get any richer. You're not going to have any more happiness or joy or feel any completeness or direction or confidence or strength or courage in your life until you get that part with God right. And then every blessing that God promises becomes a part of your life. Again, it's not always easy. And there are painful times. And there are times that are rough. And there are times that are tough on that journey as we travel as God's children. But God will work in your life and make His presence known and be a part of your life and provide for you. And every promise that God has ever made will come true in your life because you decided that you're not going to go to Tarshish, but you're going to God.